0: So, I wonder how many of you came in a little out of breath today, maybe physically, literally, or just emotionally. You know, one of the unfortunate realities of the society we live in is we're on the go a lot. And sometimes we just need to catch our breath. In fact, God designed us that way, that's why God gave us Sabbath. Uh, It's been a particularly busy last couple of weeks for me, and we don't even have kids at home. So I know that doesn't even hold a candle to what most of you are uh, going through and dealing with on a regular basis. Sometimes we just need to stop and catch our breath. Uh, We have a chance to do that a little bit this morning in the book of Revelation because there's been so much going on. We've been looking at plagues and God's wrath and all this, and there's a little bit of a break, a little bit of a chance to catch our breath and really an opportunity to see, okay, while all this is happening on earth, what is happening in heaven and, and, and what's going on there and then how does that tie into what we will see continuing to happen on earth? Revelation chapter 10, we've got a lot, uh, we, we've got uh, 10 and most of 11 to get through today and I know we're moving through this quickly so that we can finish um, before Thanksgiving but I, I appreciate y'all uh, jumping in and letting us just uh, kind of move, move quickly through this but at the same time we want to hear what God says to us. So let's start with verses 1 through 7. It says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced. To his servants, the prophets. So, the beginning of this passage, we're introduced to another angel, uh, another meaning one that we haven't seen yet. Uh, There have been a lot of angels in the Book of Revelation. This one is particularly impressive. Uh, Some people look at this, and there are certain things it talks about. The you know. uh, Face shining like the sun, legs like pillars of fire, and have asked, oh, is this Jesus? It's not Jesus. This is an angel. Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, But this is another angel that we haven't seen yet, and a particularly impressive one. Anytime you are described as wrapped in a cloud, you're pretty impressive, I'm just saying. And then on top of that, it says that there was a rainbow over his head. Uh, In the Bible, what does the rainbow represent? Go back to the to the the flood, Noah, you know, God's judgment on sinfulness of humankind. And after he flooded the earth and he rescued Noah and his family, he gave this sign that he would never again flood the earth. And that was a rainbow, right? It was a, when you see rainbow, think God's faithfulness, that God keeps his word. That's really what, what we should think about. And we see this angel with a rainbow over his head. That reminds us God keeps his word. We see him, you know, uh, it says, face shining like the sun, legs like pillars of fire. Reflecting Christ, not Jesus, but reflecting who Jesus is. And then it says that he has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. This, this is a big dude, apparently. Uh, and all angels are impressive. By the way, angels are not little cherubs with fat cheeks and round bellies, Okay. Angels are fearsome creatures, and this one more apparently than any other. He is very, very impressive, and he had something to say. He, he spoke like a, a lion, and like there were, there were thunders that, that, that thundered as he was speaking, and John did what John's been doing all along. He got ready to write it down, because that's his job, right? God speaks, John writes, and that's how we get the book of Revelation, but in this case, John's about to write down and, and the, says a voice from heaven, which is the voice of Jesus, spoke to him earlier and said, don't write that down. So there was something that he was not to record. Now remember, the book of Revelation is about God revealing himself. It's not about making things more complicated and more difficult. Revelation is about God showing himself to us. But this reminds us, there are certain aspects of God's character uh, or, or who God is or certain elements that, that will remain a mystery. And that's just part of God being God. So we don't know everything, um, but it says that that he did reveal a lot to us. In fact, the the very last verse that I read in this section, it talked about the things that would be fulfilled, the the continuing judgments that would come. But it says, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Let me give you a little illustration. For adults, you can put yourself on one side of this equation. Students, you put yourself on the other. Okay, Uh, and, And this maybe is maybe when you were younger, or maybe it could be now, but I have in my mind a little bit of a, of a younger uh, child. But there's a situation where a, a young daughter comes to her parents and says, my friend wants me to spend the night on Saturday. Can I please, 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 please go? And I'll do whatever I need to do, but just please let me go, making her case. And you're like, okay, you can go, but there's one condition. The condition is your room must be completely clean by noon on Saturday. As long as you do that, you can go. Okay, that's Monday. Wednesday rolls around. You know, parent kind of gently says, hey, you know, don't let me me just remind you. I want you to be able to go to your friend's house on Saturday. Room has to be clean. You might want to get a start now, you know. No, 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 no. I don't want to do it right now. Okay. Friday rolls around. Friday night. Still, nothing's been done. Again, gentle reminder. Hey, uh, let me just remind you. I want you to be able to go to your friend's house tomorrow night, but your room must be clean by noon tomorrow. Might be a good idea to get started on that now. Stop nagging me. I, I don't want to do it right now. Saturday morning, rolls around. Friend comes over from next door and wants to play. You say, I don't think that's a good idea. Remember, your room has to be clean. No, no, I'll, I'll do it later. Noon rolls around. She's still playing with her friend. Room hasn't been cleaned. Now, parents, this isn't a message on parenting. But let me just ask you, what do you do? And let me plead with you to keep your word for their own good and for yours what you do is you say I'm sorry you have to come in now you have to clean your room and you need to call your friend and let her know you won't be coming tonight what are you talking about you are the worst parent ever this is so unfair how could you do this to me now, are you being unfair students are they being unfair Why? Because you knew, right? The expectation. No, they're not. And I was like, yes, we should never have to clean our room ever in the history of the rest of the world. It's all unfair, right? The expectation was set, right? Look, this is what's coming, and and even some gentle reminders along the way. Um, You know what God is saying here is, look, I, I warned you. I gave you the prophets. I gave you a lot longer than until noon on Saturday. You know, Generation after generation after generation of, of, of just, I'm trying to get your attention. And we shouldn't be surprised. It's still troubling to see the things that are coming. But they shouldn't be surprising to us because he said, look, I, I announced it through my servants the prophets. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 8. Then the voice I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is opened in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So this mighty angel has a scroll in his hand, and John is told, go get the scroll from the angel. Now, can I just tell you that if I'm in John's shoes at this point, I am absolutely terrified, right? This angel is a bad dude. I mean, he's, you know, standing on the sea and on the land. He is a mighty angel, and it says that John went to him and told him to give him the scroll. Now, I would like to know, how did he do that? And I suspect it wasn't that he walked up and goes, hey, dude, give me that scroll. I suspect it was more of a, please, sir, if I may have the scroll. But either way, he got the scroll. He ate the scroll. Now, that's weird, right? Eating a scroll sounds really, really odd. But you know, this is not the first time in the Bible this is recorded. Ezekiel 3. 1 through 3 says, And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll and then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He's eating it to kind of get it inside of him. Same thing with John, but it's a little different here. Uh, It does also say in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. But in Revelation it says, but it will turn your stomach bitter. See, the, the message that John was to proclaim is a bitter, sweet message. And that's true of all of God's Word. It is sweetness to those who follow Him, those who believe in Him, but it's a bitter message to those that don't. And here, here the, the, the sweetness of the message is that God loves us, God desires a relationship with us, that God sent His only Son to this earth. To live a sinless life and die in our place. He paid the debt that you and I owe because he wants to have a relationship with us and because he, he extends forgiveness to us. That's a wonderful good news message. But there is also the bitter part to that message, and that is the reason that's necessary is because we're sinful. And our sin separates us from a holy God, and what we deserve is judgment. That's not a, a pleasant message to hear, but we need to understand the bitterness of the message in order to understand why it is good. And John is told, I need you to continue to testify. This message that is sweet in your mouth, but turns your stomach bitter. Anybody ever been to the doctor and received some news you didn't want to hear? You ever been told something like, uh, you know, you're overweight? And if you don't lose weight, you're, you're in a high risk of heart attack, so we need to get that under control. Or maybe uh, your, your blood pressure is extremely high, and if there aren't some changes in your lifestyle and diet, then you're likely to suffer a stroke. Or your blood sugar you know, is too high, you're pre-diabetic. If you don't do something to change that, you're going to have significant problems, and it eventually could kill you. I mean, nobody wants to hear. You don't hear a message like that and go, oh, gosh, that is so great. Thank you so much for making my day today. But do you need to hear a message like that? Absolutely. And that message is not being delivered from a standpoint of I'm trying to be mean to you and hateful to you. The message is delivered because it's like, listen, you need to know the truth so that we can come up with a plan to address this, the problem here, right? We need to have the the bitterness sometimes in order to to motivate us to get to the point where we can have the sweetness later on. And that's the position John is in. It is a bittersweet message. Um, God loves us and desires a relationship with us, but we're sinful and separated from Him if we continue to rebel against Christ. And there are consequences for that, and that's what the book of Revelation is all about. All right, let's read chapter 11. Stick with me here because we're going to read or at least the first 14 verses of it. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours From their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, and no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presence because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. And They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them, and at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So we begin chapter 11 with the instructions to measure the temple. Now my question is, what temple? If you go back to uh, just some of the, the, the history of the temple uh, we need to know that the book of revelation was written probably around 95 somewhere in the mid 90s not mid 90s as in the decade of prosperity and internet and all that no this is 90s as in you know uh, 65 years or so after the death of jesus and in 70 ad about 25 years before that the temple that, that existed at that time was destroyed. Now, a little background on the temple. Um, originally, the, the, the house of God, the place of God, the place of worship, was a, a movable temporary structure. It's was called the tabernacle. That's what they did when they came out of Egypt. But then David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, and God said, you're not the one. Uh, you're a man of bloodshed. Um, your son Solomon will build the temple. But David did everything he could. So he raised funds. He got plans in place. He tried to lay some of the groundwork. And then Solomon, his son, built the temple. Around 950-ish, somewhere in that range. Um, about 400 years later, that temple is destroyed by the Babylonians, 586 B.C. Um, the Jews are, are scattered. They're taken off into captivity. They come back um, a few decades later. About 60 years or so later, 50, maybe a little less than 60 years later, they come back. And um, when they come back to Jerusalem, the temple, has been destroyed. Those of you that are reading along with our Bible reading plan, this past week we read the book of Haggai. It's only a couple of chapters. But Haggai is the story of the people coming back from captivity and coming back to a place where the temple was in ruins. And you may recall from reading that, God really chastised them and said, you're living in your nice houses while my house is in in ruins. And he encouraged them to rebuild the temple. They did that. They finished around 515 B.C. Sometimes you'll hear that referred to as the second temple or Zerubbabel's temple because Zerubbabel was the governor at that time. That temple stands uh, for another, you know, uh, about 600 years almost. Not quite 600 years because 70 A.D. the Romans destroyed the temple. Jesus prophesied about this and said, you know, not one stone will be left on the other. All right, so second temple has been destroyed. When was the third temple built? It's a trick question. It hadn't been. Now he's told to go and measure a temple in Revelation 11. Again, this is a vision, this is what is coming in the future. It doesn't exist yet, but it will. And the location matters. The location of this temple was really important because uh, it was built in, on w- what we now call Jerusalem. But going all the way back to the time of Abraham on Mount Moriah, where Abraham was told to sacrifice. You remember the story, he's going to kill his son Isaac. has a knife raised above Isaac, about to sacrifice him. In obedience to, to what God said, God stopped him. But that was on this same place, on Mount Moriah. Uh, the same location that many years later David would purchase uh, when he had rebelled against God, he had uh, called for a census and there was, God was punishing for it. He wanted to offer a sacrifice to God, so he went and bought this property from a guy named Aruna the Jebusite. And he built an altar and that eventually would become the location of the temple. Well, it's going to be rebuilt eventually. Uh, as we read through this, we, we see, and we'll get into next week, the beast. When you see beast, by the way, that means antichrist. We're, we're more familiar with the term antichrist. The biblical term most often is beast. But this, uh, this beast that will, will come to power, uh, about halfway through in Daniel, it prophesies what's going to happen. In Daniel 9, there's a series of these 77s. So 69 of them happen, and then it says the anointed one is cut off. That's Jesus' death. Then there will be one more period of seven described this way. Daniel 9.27 says he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, that he is this beast or the antichrist. In the middle of the seven he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So the way I understand that is the temple will be rebuilt. There will be this person come to power about halfway through this seven-year period. And it talks even about the witnesses that they witnessed for 1,260 days. Now, they follow the, the Babylonian calendar, which was a lunar calendar. That's 30 days every month, 360 days in a year, 1,260 days. If you do the math, it's exactly three and a half years. So halfway through, at the three-and-a-half-year point, there will be this abomination that causes desolation. Uh, all of this is going to happen. But in the meantime, before that, leading up to that, are these two witnesses. And these guys are incredibly bold in sharing the gospel. Now, again, I would remind you, this is not necessarily linear and sequential. The witnesses, I think, that they, they start witnessing as soon as the church is um, raptured. This happens quickly, and so all these plagues and things are are probably happening simultaneously as they are witnessing, and and all this is going on. There's a lot uh, happening here in the book of Revelation. But Verse 4 describes them. Uh, It says that they will be given, in verse 3, authority to be as witnesses, and then verse 4, they're my two olive trees and two lampstands. Again, if you're you're reading along with us, we're also in Zechariah some this week. And in Zechariah 4, he has a vision of a gold lampstand with two olive trees on either side. And that represents God's message to the people. In the book of Zechariah, the message was, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. These two olive trees, these two lampstands, are also representing the message of God. This is a message of repentance. And we know that because it says in verse 3 that they were clothed in sackcloth. How'd you like to wear that every day for three and a half years? They're clothed in sackcloth. They're they're preaching this message of repentance to the people. Now, as you might imagine, a lot of people didn't respond too well to that. They were not beloved characters in their day. Now, there were many who did come to faith. We read a few weeks ago, I think it was chapter 7, that talks about the 144,000, 12 from each of the, the tribes of Israel. I suspect that the... Two witnesses had a big role in leading these Jewish people to faith. So many are coming to faith, but the ones that aren't, man, they hate him. I mean, just absolutely hate them. And then f- for, for their own protection, verse 5 says, If anyone would harm them, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. Now, some may read this, oh, that's figurative. You know, their words were so powerful they couldn't stand against them. But if you read on, it says this is how they must be killed. This is, this is literal here they turn into something like a fire-breathing dragon. Someone comes after them, and they literally are able to protect themselves by breathing fire from their mouths. Can you just imagine having that ability from God to do that? And it explains why it doesn't ever happen anywhere else, because if God entrusted that type of power to us, I think we might abuse it a little bit, don't you? When you're driving in traffic, somebody cuts you off, you know, gives you a message, a little sign language, you know, and you just look at him and go, yeah. just breathe the fire on them, burn them to a crisp, right? Or your boss comes into you and is just riding you about one more thing, and you've just had your fill, and you listen for a little while. And then you breathe in and you go, burn them up. Or you see people coming in wearing Texas longhorn paraphernalia after they beat up on your Bay of the Bears. And you just look them in the eye and you go, no, I'm just kidding. I'm still your pastor. I love you guys still. God does not need to entrust that level to most of us. But seriously, they needed this. This was necessary for them. It was for their own protection that they were able to do this. And so for 1,260 days, they're given not only that authority, but did you notice the other powers they have? It says that they could um, shut up the heavens so that it wouldn't rain. That they could turn the, the water to blood. That they could bring plagues. Now here's the question. Does that sound familiar? A lot of commentators are going to say, well, who are these two witnesses? And, and, and it could very well be that... They're Moses and Elijah. You know, Elijah shut up the heavens for three and a half years. It didn't rain. Moses given the authority to turn the water into blood and to bring plagues. I'm not convinced that they're literally that that's who they are, although they have made an appearance. You know, if you remember the, the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, when Jesus was transfigured, Moses and Elijah appeared. So it is possible, but either way, they're coming in the spirit of. Moses and Elijah, with that type of power. And they witness for these 1260 days, the first three and a half years of this tribulation period, and then their time is done. And when their time is done, it says the beast, this Antichrist, comes from this pit and just overpowers them and kills them. And they are hated so intensely that their bodies, their dead bodies, are just left in the street. And the people began to celebrate. I mean, this is just a sick picture. But they they institute a new holiday, Dead Prophets Day. And they're exchanging gifts and celebrating the fact that these two are died. And, And they're shaming them because in that culture, it was a horrible thing to not bury someone. To leave their bodies exposed just out on the streets is a horrible thing. And so they're giving gifts to each other and they're celebrating for three and a half days. And then suddenly everything changes because it says the breath of God comes back into them. Now, wouldn't you just love to see this? They stand up to their feet. And it says that the (laughs) the people that saw them were terrified. I guess so. You've been celebrating their death For the last three and a half days, and now they're back alive again. And then right in front of them, they're just taken right back up into heaven. Just a remarkable picture of of God's power. But then it says that what happened in conjunction with that, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city was destroyed. 7,000 people died in the earthquake. This is in addition, of course, to all the other plagues and things that were happening. But then it says something really interesting at the end of verse 13. Those that weren't killed, it says the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Some people, this is apparently getting their attention, which as we said last week is the point of all of this, is to get their attention. Apparently many people come to faith in Christ at this particular time, but a lot of them don't. Now, here's my question for us as we begin to wrap things up here. We're talking about these two witnesses that were so bold in their faith. My question, how are you doing being a witness for Christ? This passage is convicting to me because I know I need to be bolder. And frankly, our church needs to be bolder in sharing a witness to Christ and talking about who He is and what He has done. I'll close with a story uh, that I read here just recently. A story of a pastor by the name of Shane. And um, it's a true story. He wrote um, a little book and, and was telling about when he first became a believer. And he worked at the time in a um, kind of a factory type setting. And he had a friend named Brandon that they worked side by side and they became buds. And they would you know, work together, they would have lunch together, they um, you know, just developed a friendship. And Shane said, I was a new Christian. I was all excited. I was what I would call on fire for Jesus. He's always wearing his Christian t-shirts to work and, you know, listening to his Christian radio and pray before his meals and all this. And, and he said, looking back, I thought I was being a witness to Brandon, but he said, I never, I never verbally did at all. I never told him anything about Jesus. Well, one day um, on a Monday morning, Brandon came to work, 8 o'clock in the morning, and he walks up to Shane this big old smile on his face. And he's like, Shane, you're never going to believe what happened yesterday. And he said, what happened? He goes, you're a Christian, right? Which he said made him think, gosh, did he really even have to ask me that? But he's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. He goes, well, I went to church for the first time yesterday. My nephew was being baptized. And um, I heard the gospel, and they told me about Jesus and how he died for our sins. And, and, and that, that if we put our trust in him, that we could be forgiven and we could have eternal life. And he says, "So I, I put my trust in Jesus. I'm a Christian now. And they just, you know, big hug, and they they were celebrating, like, man, we're going to be together forever. And and then uh, right after that, he said, everything just kind of changed. His expression changed, and he kind of pushed back a little bit from him. He got a very serious face, and he said, Shane, you know what else they told me? They told me that if you don't know Jesus, that because of your sin, you'll spend an eternity in hell. Do you believe that's true? Shane said he felt this big knot form in his stomach and he said, yeah, I do. That's what the Bible teaches. With tears streaming down his face, he looked at him and he said, why did you not care about me enough to tell me that? Guys, the bottom line, when we are not being a bold witness, it's usually because we're more concerned about ourselves than anything else. We're worried about you know, am I going to feel awkward or is this going to, you know, am I going to say the wrong thing and have to worry about leading somebody astray or is this going to potentially cost me a friendship? We, we get so focused on ourselves and we forget the importance of being a witness. My challenge to you and I, I, as we wrap up, we're just going to take a few minutes to just pray through this and let, let this, this sink into our hearts today. We need to be bold. I mean, our witness might not look exactly like the two witnesses during the time of Revelation, but church, we need to be bold.